I'm Chris Motes, and this is Faith in Politics. On this broadcast, we range from the soul to the state as we try to cultivate those virtues and explore those principles that help us live well as faithful Catholics in this great land. Well, we're coming to the end of the summer. Over the course of the summer, uh, in addition to some of our, our, our regular shows, we've been exploring some of the recent Supreme Court decisions, of course, had uh, Jason Atkins, the executive director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, on to discuss uh, Bostock, the Clayton County, Georgia, in Jason's words, the Roe versus Wade of, uh, of, of sexual identity. And of course, we had um, uh, an Institute for Justice attorney on to talk about Espinosa v. Montana and what that might mean for school choice, a topic that is, that is near and dear to many Catholics. And of course, there's a lot we can learn from church teaching on the topic of parent choice and education. Continuing the same trend, we're gonna to talk uh, today about some of the, the recent pro-life jurisprudence that has come out of the court, uh, uh, specifically uh, June Medical Services. My guest today is Professor Teresa Collette. Uh, professor Collette is a teacher, professor at the University of St. Thomas School of Law. She serves as the director of the school's pro-life center. And previously from uh, 2009 to 2016, served uh, as uh, as a member or a consultor, I don't know the exact term, uh, maybe we can ask, on the Pontific Pontifical Council for the Family, which is just fascinating to me, and then served as a delegate to the International Conference on Population and Development in 2013 uh, on behalf of the mission of the Holy See to the United Nations. Um, just a, a wealth of experience working uh, on behalf of uh, the pro-life movement is special attorney general for the states of Oklahoma and Kansas, consulting with attorneys general in other states. Um, just really giving her professional career, not just to teaching students, but to, to working in the courts uh, and in the public square, defending laws at the service of human life, uh, the family, and marriage. So Professor Collette, welcome to our show today. Thank you. I'm delighted to be a part of it. So it's it's so good to, uh, so good to to see uh, and I just you know I've we've we've known one another for some time um, as regular listeners listeners will know I was a student at the University of St Thomas School of Law uh, from 2010 to 2013 and actually my wife Hannah and I I don't know if you remember this we were in your property class I do uh, remember first year. it <laughs> uh, I don't think I did too bad in that class but I I don't know if I've ever asked you before but it, I just find it fascinating this work. Uh, the Pontifical Council for the Family. Uh, before we launch into uh, June Medical Services, can you tell us a little bit about, about that work? It really was a wonderful experience. And it was, I think, one never knows for sure because your bishop has to uh, essentially nominate you and you go through a process uh, where the papal delegate here in the United States, the nuncio has to decide whether to forward it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so I'm not entirely sure how it came about, but I think it was the work on the marriage amendment, frankly, mm. in Minnesota. Um, as you know, and I think you were actually here when that happened. I was. Uh, Minnesota was the only state in the union in which a marriage amendment was defeated. Now, Arizona had a defeat, but then they came back the next election and uh, protected natural marriage as a matter of state constitutional law. But during that time period, I actually had served as one of uh, the Catholic conference spokespersons that traveled the state to various mm. dioceses and engaged in conversation with parishioners because, you know, people whose life is not in the law actually 
don't think too much about sort of what is the civil definition of marriage and why does it matter and what are the consequences of changing it. Um, and so they paired lawyers and uh, priests and we would go into a parish and we would talk about, you know, here are the legal consequences if you change the definition. And the priest would talk about our theology of marriage and why it matters what the state does because while we do believe um, in the establishment uh, clause of the Constitution as a church, we think it protects us as much as it protects uh, people who don't share our faith. Um, the fact is that what government does matters, and we're seeing that more and more, whether we're talking about the shutdown of state government and the declaration that abortion is an essential service, or we're talking about any number of other things. Well, getting back to the Pontifical Council, um, I was delighted to receive uh, this invitation. And we met um, annually in Rome with people from all over the world, um, married couples from all over the world, to advise uh, the Holy See on what the proper response was, uh, more often than not, to this strong international effort to redefine marriage, to redefine parent-child relationship, to redefine sexual identity, uh, to redefine sexual morality. Um, and what was really fascinating was to listen to people from other countries. Uh, our, our representatives from India, where Catholicism is two to five percent, and there's still active persecution in certain parts of India. Um, about how they go about evangelizing, particularly about the family. Um, the, uh, we had a representative from the Middle East who also was talking about the persecution that was going on of Christians in that area. Um, so you really, I, I think the most striking conversation I had, though, was how do you evangelize in countries that have allowed polygamy, multiple wives, when conversion means you have to set aside all but your original wife, when the entire social structure of the country, you've now eliminated their, if you will, life savings, retirement, the yeah. structure in which these women continue to survive as they age. Yeah. How, how does the church respond to that? It's yeah. a wonderful assignment. Loved it. Had a Great experience, made lots of good friends around the world. Um, but it also informs the way I think about domestic politics and what our Supreme Court's doing and and how we as a nation are seen as a leader throughout the world in our jurisprudence. Well, you, you know, just kind of hearing these stories too from India and the Middle East kind of highlights the, the fact we just have so much to be grateful for in this country. There's, there's a lot, a lot of work to be done. Um, which is why you know organizations like the Pro Life Center are so important. Why you know state politics are so important, um, but also why you know some of these these cases that can arise out of state statutes become so important too, um, having impact even beyond just you know the, the case we're going to talk about here, um, June Medical Services uh, B. Russo, in a Louisiana case now having sort of national import. Um, so it, this. Um, America is, we can say, maybe better off than other, other parts of the world, still not perfect, and our work really, really does matter, as you put it, the law matters. So maybe this is a, a good point to transition into the case at hand. Um, June Medical Services, LLC, uh, B. 
Russo, uh, United States Supreme Court case, it kind of, I think it, it rocked the pro-life world this summer. There's a lot of, a lot of disappointment. Um, and so I kind of want to get into that and, and, and you can help unpack it for us a little bit, but just some of the basic facts here, there's a state law at stake placing a hospital admission requirement upon an abortion facility doctor. Um, and and that this this state statute rose all the way up to the Supreme Court. So maybe could you take it from there and fill in any other um, you know important facts that I missed, and and help us you know what should a faithful Catholic think when they read some of the headlines following this case? Well, I had the privilege of actually working with uh, briefly the state uh, solicitor general in that state and preparing mm. her for her oral argument. Uh, based in part uh, on a brief that we had prepared for the Pro-Life Center. Um, Well, actually, we were representing um, Concerned Women for America and the Charlotte um, Lozier Lozier Foundation. Um, But the case arose out of an increasing appreciation of the malpractice and outrageous conduct that was occurring in some of the limited, uh, some of the abortion facilities. There were, there was testimony before the state legislature of abortion providers actually waiting three, four hours before calling emergency services while women bled out in their Mm. clinics from perforated uteruses. Um, There was testimony about, um, and these were, this was testimony from medical professionals Uh, of emergency room doctors having to remove, um, and I don't want to be be too graphic, but I'm assuming that it's adults listening to this, uh, what's known as a bobbing head from a dismemberment abortion, because part of the problem with dismemberment abortion, uh, which occurs after uh, late mid-trimester and and post-viability, is that you have to make sure you get all the fetal body parts. Um, and once you've removed the, and you can't begin with the head because the baby will take a breath and then you'll have a live birth, which is sort of the ultimate disaster for an abortion doctor. Um, although it's a great blessing, but the, obviously they, you, they have not achieved their goal of killing the child. Um, and so they, they remove the child uh, limb by limb surgically and the head is the last thing to come out. And it's, it's hard to grasp, depending on how far the gestational development has occurred. So there were reports of, you know, clear malpractice, clear uh, conduct that was outrageous. Um, and the legislature, in response to these reports, uh, were trying to come up with something that the courts would accept as constitutional to improve the quality of care for women in these centers. Now, what's interesting is not a single Louisiana woman had actually complained of the law that was challenged in this case that required doctors to get hospital admitting privileges um, or to have some surrogate arrangement for that. And that simply meant that if a woman was admitted to the hospital because of these acts of malpractice, that there would be easy facilitation of records transfer so that they would know exactly what protocols had been followed, um, have access to any ultrasounds that occurred prior to the abortion, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
So, so you're saying that there were no women that complained about this that statute. That is correct. And, that is correct. And this is something that Justice Thomas really focuses on in, in his dissent too, I think, that, look, who are we giving standing to, to, to complain right. about these laws? It's, right. it's, only the peop- it's only the businesses that are being regulated, not, not, right. the pe- not the people that the law is protecting. That's right. And, and that's something that non-lawyers really uh, are unfamiliar with because it varies in some state courts. Some state uh, constitutions allow the state Supreme Court to give what's called an advisory opinion. And so the fact that you're a taxpayer may entitle you to go in and challenge something in a way that you cannot go into federal court. The U.S. Supreme Court only hears cases brought by people who can show that they have actually been harmed by the law or that there is an imminent threat that they're being harmed by the law. And if, they, if the abortion industry were treated as any other industry, the, the, the only harm that they could claim, arguably, is an economic harm, uh, which gets the lowest level of scrutiny for the most part. So your profit margin isn't as big as it should be. Well, yes, we can see that the government's impacted your profit margin by these regulations, but it doesn't reach unconstitutional levels. It's only by allowing the abortion industry to piggyback, if you will, on the women that they purport to serve that they get this heightened level of inquiry that they get to claim that a law that creates an undue burden or a substantial obstacle to abortion by that is by its very nature unconstitutional. Imagine if we let the tobacco industry go in and claim the rights of smokers to avoid cigarette um, labeling. Um, There's no, there's, I'm trying to think. There's virtually yeah. no other industry. Maybe the news industry yeah. uh, because of First, First Amendment, Amendment free speech yeah. sure. protection. But yeah. there's no other industry in the country that gets to do that. Yeah, I and think that that's, was really part of the case. I think that's something, too, that Justice Alito said in his dissent that what we're really describing here is a conflict of interest. That yes. these, these regulated industries have, you know, it's it's all about their interest, and now all of a sudden they're stepping in and asserting this this claim to speak on behalf of the, the, the women that they're they're exploiting and that the law is seeking to protect. This is what we would just describe as a conflict of interest. But in any other case, but an abortion case, we would we would just sort of dismiss this out of hand, like, no, of course you can't speak for them. You know? Right. Right. So. Right. And because of the rules about nonprofits, yeah. if there really were women that were concerned about this, and this was the thrust of the brief that the Pro-Life Center presented, they have proven themselves in the 40 plus years since Roe versus Wade, perfectly capable of showing up in court and complaining about it. Women yeah. have filed their own lawsuits. In fact, Roe versus Wade was filed by Norma McCorvey, who was then known as Jane Roe. Doe versus Bolton was filed by a woman, or at least the lawyers representing a woman. So this idea that the industry gets to wrap itself in the mantle of women's health, when in fact what they're doing is trying to defeat health regulations based on a clear record of abuse and misconduct, is... Ridiculous. (laughs) Ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, and you'd think too, with the record in front of the legislature, and even following this this awful Kermit Gosnell case uh, a couple years back, that 
that, that our courts would see, you know, this is, um, there, there is this conflict. So if you're just tuning in, this is Chris Motes, host of Faith and Politics, joined by Professor Teresa Collette, uh, professor of law at University of St. Thomas in Minnesota, director of the Pro-Life Center there. We're discussing June Medical Services LLC v. Uh, Russo, big pro-life decision out of the Supreme Court uh, this, this summer. Professor, um, I think uh, as we were reading the headlines when this, this case came out, a lot of your pro-lifers, a lot of your Catholics, we just kind of, you know, wanted to shake our fists a little bit at, at Roberts. Can, can you help us understand a little bit this, you know, for non-lawyers especially, stare decisis is what he rested, let the decision stand as this doctrine, very old doctrine. Um, can you unpack his, because he, he provided the tipping, the tipping vote uh, for the 5-4. Help us. Well, kind of. Okay, sorry, decisis is what he tell us. <laughs> tell us. The idea, and and Chris, you and Hannah know that uh, because I teach property law, one of the themes is stability is really important in the yeah, law. It property is. lawyers love stability. That's what makes us know that our ownership of our home is safe and yeah. the value in our home is safe. Stability is really important. This is this is a Catholic value too, just sort of the rule of law. There's even a section in the catechism on contracts, you know, and, yes. and the rule of law and contracts yes. is, is being and important. So, Stability is extremely important, and stare decisis is the idea that once a court has made a decision on a major point, that unless the facts of the case are very different than the original case, that the same rule ought to apply. Now, but it is a judicially created rule, and there are times when, and here's one of the things that's really frustrating in abortion litigation as well, there are times when the facts aren't similar and therefore you don't have to apply the same rules. But so many of our abortion cases, the vast majority of Supreme Court cases in this area don't have any factual record. Mm. Roe versus Wade has no factual record. Yeah. And so the court is just looking at legal arguments and doesn't really know the facts of the case. So stare decisis is an important doctrine and a doctrine that is often adhered to but when the facts differ, when technology differs, yeah. when uh, the practice is one that historically was banned for over a century, and now we're just beginning to look at the increases of infertility in women and some of the consequences, preterm births, et cetera, that at least some medical experts think are a direct result of the abortion increase of abortion in this country, those facts should matter as we think about what the rule of law is. There were two rules that were really up before the court. We've already talked a little bit about the first one. Should the abortion industry have standing? Um, and because uh, in the Fifth Circuit, where Texas, uh, Texas I'm sorry, where uh, Louisiana and Texas both are, uh, the Fifth Circuit had basically said that you couldn't attack that issue directly uh, it was a decided question. And so the state attorney general of Louisiana had made the decision early on not to add more pages to a brief, making an argument that the Fifth Circuit would simply say, do you not read our cases? Do you not know what our rule is? Um, because that irritates judges and yeah. you usually try to avoid that. Right. Um, but then once it became clear that the Supreme Court would be open to this question, the AG immediately began to pursue the standing question. 
Justice, Chief Justice Roberts refused to even address the standing question because he said it had been waived at the lower court and therefore you don't get to bring up new arguments that you don't bother to make at the trial court level. And it had actually been presented in the Fifth Circuit briefing, but not at the trial court level. Um, the other question in this case was whether or not a case just a, a year before, or a couple of years before, the Hellerstadt case out of Texas had established the right rule for examining abortion regulations. And the Hellerstadt case has its own sort of weird procedural things going on. Um, essentially, Texas passed a comprehensive regulatory bill that had all sorts of provisions, some of which are obviously in women's best interest. Things like making sure the hallways are wide enough to uh, uh, allow a gurney through when there's an emergency. Right. And yet the district court in Texas uh, struck down all of the regulations, didn't go through them carefully, et cetera, et cetera. Went up to the U.S. Supreme Court and Justice Kennedy was still on the bench. Um, and the court changed the rule for examining what abortion laws are constitutional. Prior to that, it had been Planned Parenthood versus Casey. And in that case, the court said that unless you can show that a law creates a substantial obstacle to a large fraction of women seeking abortion, that it's constitutional. It's within the normal realm of governance for public health and safety. Yeah. In Hellerstadt, in a 5-4 opinion, the court ruled that even if you can't show a substantial obstacle, the rule may be unconstitutional unless the state can show a positive benefit to women mm. from this. Well, as all your listeners know right now, with COVID, showing a positive benefit of any medical procedure, process, or rule can be a very tricky thing given the science in the area. In the area of abortion, the abortion industry controls all the data. Yep. And so trying to prove something uh, benefits women affirmatively when the industry keeps uh, evidence to the contrary, think the videotapes that David yep. Zalodin made, right. et right. hidden away is almost impossible. And we don't, the CDC does not have comprehensive data on this. So that change basically would have undermined almost every abortion law in the country. In fact, I'm involved in a case right now representing the Minnesota Senate, where the industry here in Minnesota is attacking even the obligation to report adverse effects of abortion and harm that women suffer. Mm. So, if that were the rule, we would be in great trouble. What Roberts did do yeah. is Roberts changed the rule back to the old Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Yeah. So did Chief Justice Roberts disappoint us gravely by allowing the industry to continue to wrap itself in women's health? Yes. Would I stomp on his foot if I got a chance over this? <laughs> well, that'd be a physical assault, so maybe not. But yeah. I sure would give him a piece of my mind. But... He helped a lot by getting us back to the old rule. You know, and I'm, I'm grateful that you kind of walked through the nuances of the legal rationale, which is very important. And I think that explanation puts in context why you, 
for, for a lot of us pro-lifers, you know, you see these headlines in like Slate magazine, why, why June medical was a stealth attack on abortion, or even the New York times had a headline that said, Roberts is no pro-life hero. And we're like, wait, what? We, we were shaking our fists at him. Why should we, why does the other side upset about this? And it's like, he kind of took it took us back a little bit to, um, to, to this somewhat better, better standard. Marginally better. Yes. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and, and even, you know, so we're sitting here in the eighth circuit, I'm in South Dakota, the eighth circuit. Um, so that, that's the circuit we watch for our uh, abortion litigation also. And, and the state of South Dakota does have some, ha, has a case at the district court um, that we'll be watching in the future, God willing, uh, the eighth circuit. We even just saw a little movement here in the eighth circuit as a result of this June medical case. I think it was down in Arkansas um, back at the beginning, beginning of August, um, it, a positive kind of pro-life result, I think we could characterize it as. So, you know, we've the got- The circuit's pretty good. Yeah. I'm so sure. maybe, in a, Professor, in, in about two minutes here remaining, you know, we, we've got a lot of different listeners to this program, maybe just kind of your, um, you know, your, your layperson, non-lawyer Catholic who's interested in politics, we, we may also have some uh, state legislators. Who knows? Maybe let's say that let's say that Governor Nome is listening in right now. What's what sort of advice or counsel would you give to those that are just like really invested and deeply care about the future of the pro-life uh, legal movement? What words of wisdom would you have to offer? Well, as our former president said, elections have consequences, mm. and we are facing a monumental election. I am. Um, finishing up a short article right uh, today on the effect of party platforms on the pro-life issue itself. So without talking about particular candidates, it's really important to know what a party stands for in this instance. And in the past four years, we have seen, particularly in the international arena, amazing advances for the pro-life agenda. The United Nations is trying to make abortion a human right. And if that becomes the case, U.S. courts will be bound by it. Mm -hmm. And yet, the United States government at the U.N. single-handedly stopped that in some recent negotiations. So oh. we, are, we need to really be prudent, wise as serpents but innocent as doves, as Amen. we try to advance this. We have to accept that gradualism right now is all that will succeed, as well as conversion of the hearts. So speak kindly, speak gently, but truthfully on this issue. And, and that, just uh, thank you for those, those final words, that, that prayer and conversion of hearts, so, so important. And for gradualism, for, for those of our listeners that have maybe never heard that term before, uh, something St. John Paul II wrote a little bit about. So I'll maybe drop a link into our show notes if you want to learn a little more about uh, that principle, which which does drive at the heart of prudence, which really informs how we act in, in the public square. So, Professor Collette, this was just so delightful, and uh, I hope we can have you back sometime. I would be delighted. It's always a joy to see you, and please tell Hannah hello for me. I will. I will. And thank you, dear listeners, for, for tuning in. As always, if you've got ideas for the future, you know, tell me what you liked, what you didn't like, what you want to hear about in the future, you can just go to sdcatholicconference.org, click Contact Us, and drop me a note. Uh, love, love to hear from you. And until next time, live well. <laughs>